Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex. We're back at it once again with another new episode. And this week, we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3 as John the Baptist prepares the way. So, as you've been listening on this uh, series in the Gospels, we've uh, done an intro to Matthew. And then over that time, we've looked at Matthew 1. And then we paralleled that with Luke 1 and 2, and then we looked at Matthew 2 last week. And this week we're going to look at 3. So we're just going to kind of work ourselves through the text, probably taking on a chapter per episode. And we're going to be talking just kind of in general what is going on in this the, these passages. And we will be discussing you know, some of the basics and uh, helping us to unpack certain constructs of theology. And we may spend a little bit more time on some sections. And if we don't finish a chapter for that episode, we'll just push it into next week and come back to it. I'm in no hurry to work through this. If we took this book on and did chapter week, we'd be 28 weeks in Matthew before we move on, which is not a big deal. If we go to 30, if we go to 40, I'm fine with it. I hope you are too, but that's just what we're going to do depending on uh, the workload ahead of us. So, I, there, there's a lot of big doctrine in Matthew, and that's why I, one reason why I chose it, uh, and two, there's just a lot of things that we can try and piece together and unpack and help us to understand. Like we may spend a lot of time uh, just focusing on uh, the first part of the Beatitudes, so we might spend a whole episode just on that, and we'll look at, you know, perhaps some of those uh, nuances that have in many cases been influenced and maybe warped a little bit to uh, be this like sort of work that we must be doing as Christians in order to achieve whatever this goal is that we are seeking. So we uh, are going to work ourselves through it. We'll take our time. We will be diligent stewards of the text. And uh, if we just so happen to uh, get through that whole chapter in about that 35 minute mark, then uh, we'll do it. If we've got a ways to go, then we'll just 
pause it and wait for next week. So we'll just kind of determine that as we get there. Uh, just a few quick reminders before we begin the show in itself. Uh, if you want to help support us, you can join us on Patreon and you'll get all the exclusive behind the scenes work that we do for the show. You'll get sermon notes that I do weekly. You'll have um, early release of the podcast by a couple weeks. You'll have um, Bible study, which we do every week. And right now we're working in the harmony of the Gospels. And so we're looking at all four Gospels concurrently. Then you'll have access to exclusive podcast episodes and other exclusive content that I produce solely for patron. And as of right now, we're gearing up to do our annual Secret Santa. And you can get in and get a part of that and share some of Christ's love with a complete stranger for more or less. Uh, there's a great community where we've all become good friends and uh, I would invite you to join us on discord and, and on Instagram and you can become a part of that family. It is one that is, I have treasured for the last few years. I absolutely love these people. So come join us dollar a month or $10 and uh, 20 or 40 cents or something like that for a whole year, you can pay a whole year up front. You have uh, unlimited access throughout that whole year if you choose to give more, great, and I, I, I praise your giving, and I am blessed by it, but there's no need to. One dollar a month is all I ask, and that gets you everything. The other thing to consider is if you are looking for good Bible software, if you're looking for something that you can house a, uh, you know, a library, you can start with uh, just a very basic one and go to and build it out and become elaborate, or you can just buy a big package and have everything right at your fingertips immediately. And that's through Logos Bible Software. It's what I use every episode. It's what I use for the Bible study. It's what I use to prepare my sermon notes. It's what I use for school. It does everything I need it to do. And it's not just for pastors. It's for lay people and all sorts of uh, people from every walk of life. For the moms who are trying to teach their kids from small group leaders to youth pastors to just somebody looking to expand their understanding. Logos fits all of those buckets and you can make it as complex or as simple as possible. You can have as many different types of Bibles and study Bibles and commentaries as you want. You can have sermons. You can have videos, teaching tutorials, and all that sort of stuff. It is versatile and very great. I And, and I've been using Logos 10 now. I'm going to do a, a release on YouTube here in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm going to kind of demonstrate my um, review, if you would, of Logos 10. I absolutely love it. It is It is fast. It's responsive. I don't have near. I don't have any issues with it. Like I had, you know, like occasionally it'd be with nine or eight, it would kind of hang up or be a little slow in response. Ten has been lightning fast. It is unbelievable how well they've made this new platform. So very happy. You can go to logos.com forward slash undying light. Get yourself a copy discount uh, at a discounted rate, and you'll get some free books if you're a new customer. If you're an existing customer, you'll still get those great discounts. The new books are really just for new customers so or the free books i should say uh, other than that you know the only other reminder is check out the show notes uh, as we kind of tell you every week there's always going to be something there um, that i am in supportive of whether it's bible software or patron or fitness and things like that fitness has become very important in my life once again these last couple of years and just looking at the landscape of how uh, our diets and everything change our moods. It changes our um, appetite to do things in this world. 
the amount of sleep or not or no sleep that we get affects the way we operate during the day. There's so many things, and I have been blessed to have finally found my kind of way through those weeds. So I'm an open book. I'm more more willing to more than willing to talk to anybody about any questions you may have. So please send me a DM, shoot me a message on Facebook, send us an e- uh, email on the show, and uh, I'll be happy to talk and answer your questions. And even if it's about some of the supplements, like I am a, um, an ambassador for uh, the AML supplement line, and I just love what they produce. I love what they bring to the table. They are probably some of the, in- they are hands down the industry leader in everything they do. So ask me any question. I'm an open book. The last thing I want to remind, or well, it's not even a reminder. It's nothing I've said before, um, but we will be uh, temporarily taking down the website. Um, we've had it running for a while. I have not had the opportunity to really pour into it like I've wanted to. And I'm considering looking for another host in the meantime, uh, just to find something maybe a little bit more easier and more affordable. So I might actually go back to WordPress, which was what we did years back. And I would like to start producing some written content, but I I have no time to focus on that until I'm done with school. So the website's going to go down. I, I don't have an ETA on that, but it'll probably be out through the first of the year and it might be down for six months. Uh, so if you are actively visiting the website, just be patient with me as I am trying to find a new solution. If you don't, then, you know, you're not losing anything. So, uh, you know, the traffic has been kind of light and I just haven't been producing enough content, um, for it to make it worth my wild. And so I've turned off the renewal on it and I think it ends in like February or something. So just to be, uh, an FYI to be on the lookout for that. So. With all of that said, let's look at Matthew chapter 3. So we have set the stage. We've gone through the genealogy. We've worked ourselves from Adam to Jesus. We've worked ourselves through those generations. We've discussed that. Uh, and, and in reality, we could probably spend you know a couple of episodes talking about some of these people and how God has used them and how God has grafted in uh, people who might not seem like they would be uh, worthy of the lineage of Christ, but yet here we have them in this list. And it's a great thing to understand when reading through the genealogy and studying it. It's also beneficial for us to see how God has kept that promise from Genesis 3 all the way to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and so after we looked at the genealogy, we had a uh, short segment on that episode looking at the birth of Christ from the eyes of Matthew. Then we spent a whole week looking at Luke chapter 1 and 2, uh, and we kind of paved the way, if you would, of Luke's interpretation of the birth announcement, uh, or should I say the, the pregnancy announcement of Mary. Uh, we also mentioned John the Baptist, who we're going to be spending time today looking at. Then last week we came back to Matthew 2 and looked at just these few quick segments that he has uh, surrounding the wise men and the fleeing to Egypt, Herod going out and killing all of the infants, and then the return to Nazareth. So go back and listen to those episodes for the context needed to dig into this one. But there's, there's a time gap to be aware of too. From the return to Nazareth, 
there's going to be probably somewhere between a 28 and a 30 year gap that Matthew gives us. In Luke, we have a just a quick segment of Jesus as a pre-teenager, basically. Um, he's 12 years old and he's in the temple. He's, you know, a young boy. And so that's the only time we actually get any sort of understanding to uh, the, the early childhood of Jesus Christ. The rest of the Gospels just pick up, like Mark picks right up with the ministry of Jesus. John gives us this beautiful prologue in his in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 18, where he uh, makes this proclamation of the Messiah being the Son of God, being Jesus Christ, the Word, the flesh, the Logos, all that. It's, you know... John basically sets the stage for his gospel. And then in the latter half of chapter one, he moves right on into uh, the later ministry, the early ministry of Jesus Christ, basically. So Matthew and Luke are the only two gospels that give us the story of the birth of Jesus. So it's always beneficial to look at these and kind of walk through in parallel. And it's always fascinating to see how all four of the gospels describe Jesus and especially how they will pick and choose the kind of direction they take with the writing of their gospel. So we have Matthew three on our plate for today. Uh, There's roughly 17 verses here. So it's a shorter chapter. uh, So we'll obviously be able to work through it. Uh, Next week, we're going to dig into the temptation of Jesus. There's 25 verses there. There's a few extra things that he does. He begins his ministry, calls his first disciples and the ministers to some great crowds. Then we'll move into the Beatitudes and we'll probably spend a whole episode on verses 2 through 12. Uh, And then we'll probably truncate and hit the rest of chapter 5, maybe even split that into two more episodes, depending on our time uh, that we have. Now, there's something to probably pick up for next week to consider too, is how we'll look at uh, chapter four of Matthew and we might parallel that with Luke four and see why Luke gives us a different order for the temptations than Matthew does. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, this isn't necessarily a study on the, on the harmony of the gospels, but it also helps us though to see in some of these instances where another gospel might, you know, uh, reintroduce a, 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 an event or they might describe the event from a different angle. And I had the Bible study last night and I made the, the statement as in the Bible study, we're going through the harmony of the gospels and we're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus from all four gospels at one time. And I made the statement that each of the four gospels will also, will often talk about a particular event, but they're going to give you different views of it. And so it's kind of like uh, four people on, on each on their own street corner at an intersection, witness a car accident. Each of those four people will probably give you different, uh, you know, a different outlook, a different story. And so, you know, person a might have a similar story to B and C, but they won't have the same view as D and D might be similar to C and B, but not a, you know, this is just kind of one of those things to really consider. So we'll look at that as well. Let's look at John, uh, John, Matthew chapter three. I just looked at John the Baptist prepares a way as the title. That's why I said it. So let's dig in here. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His willowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so we're going to pause here, and then we'll pick up in 13 through 17 and talk about the baptism of Jesus. There's a lot to unpack from uh, John the Baptist here as he's uh, now introduced in uh, full context. We have kind of alluded to him in the previous episodes, but now we have a greater understanding of him in his ministry and and. You know, Luke gives us some descriptive narratives. John does as well. And it helps us to see how those gospels portray John the Baptist. And But we're going to be focusing on Matthew's view. And we'll probably work through the other three gospels um, at, at another time. So from Matthew, we have these days, right? It just kind of kicks us right into um, the adult life now of John the Baptist and Jesus it helps us to remember, according to Luke, that John it would be probably a cousin of Jesus as Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. So they would be like second cousins or however that <laughs> however the genealogy falls there. But John is related to Jesus. He's about six, give or take, months older than he is. And so he had probably started his ministry just a few months before Jesus had come to be baptized by him. And it helps to see, too, as we say in those days, that kind of gives us the prolongment to uh, John being older now as kind of time has moved forward. We notice that gap of time between Matthew 2 and Matthew 3. And then we get to this the, the statement of him you know, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Again, no time frame on how long he's been doing this, uh, but he says, uh, Matthew records here, that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all of the region were going out to him, and they were baptized in the river, confessing their sins. And when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers. A very similar statement Jesus will make later on here. So we have kind of some, you know, trying to put together the the viewpoint the, the like the lens if you would to the time frame it helps us to understand 
that these events probably took place over the course of a couple of months that John had been uh, preaching, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is something very uh, common for us to take on. It's not a, um, you know, an unheard of. This didn't happen, in, you know, uh, for one week and then Jesus comes or one day and then Jesus comes. It's probably been going on for a couple of months. So John the Baptist, obviously the son of Zechariah, an elderly priest, uh, and his wife Elizabeth, who was Mary's relative, as we indicated last week, uh, or two weeks ago, I should say, at now, is in the wilderness. He's baptizing these individuals, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, God has called John to prepare the way for Jesus. This had been indicated to us as well when we looked at Luke. And this is also prophesied for us by the prophet Isaiah when he says this, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So there's somebody who is crying out in the wilderness. That is John the Baptist. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is that voice. He's declaring, make a way for the Lord and make his path straight. So that prophecy is being fulfilled. Here in Matthew 3, as John the Baptist has come on the scene to make that proclamation. But he makes the statement with repent. That's, that's how he opens the statement. This exhortation, which John addresses to all of Israel, calls for a radical transformation of the entire uh, person, a fundamental turnabout. To repent meant to be converted from the unbelief to faith. With one bolt of lightning, he hurls together. Uh, both those selling and those buying works. He says, repent. Now one group imagines why we have repented. The other says we need no repentance. The, and the interesting thing that we should also take into consideration is when John is preaching repentance, we haven't yet gotten to Jesus and the gospel and the good news. John is still essentially in this Old Testament framework. He is calling Israel to turn from their sins, to turn from their unbelief to faith. And so that is what the repenting is doing. He is in there declaring that the Lord is at hand. He is here. He is coming very quickly. He's going to be here before we know it. And it is my job to prepare you. Be baptized and confess your sins and God will be gracious to fulfill or to forgive them. So that is what this statement is now we can argue until the cows come home about how the order of the Christian life goes, whether we should repent first and then be baptized. Well, cause John did it. Yeah. But John also did this in the framework of the old Testament, right? So we are still technically, and you know, before the ministry of Jesus really begins, we still have that the, the, the law, the legalistic construct being presented to us here as a means to turn from those unbelief to faith. And so we have to understand that the repentance being keyed here by John is something for us to, uh, to understand as being a means of this is what John did. His whole purpose was to uh, come on the scene and rattle the doors, knock on windows and the door frames and arouse Israel, poke the sleeping bear and call them to repentance. That was John's entire purpose. 
And uh, Luther has a whole extensive amount of notes on John the Baptist. And uh, I talked a little bit about it last night in our Bible study. If you're curious, you can join us there and check them out. So in verse 3, we have the voice. Uh, the prophet Isaiah described the Lord's forerunner. The repentance is compared to building the straight road. And this is the, you know, framework Isaiah is making that proclamation to make his path straight isn't just to mean to lay down, you know, a straight path and, and let him walk it without having to go to or fro. But it's a it's an analogy to say that you are to repent from your evil and wicked ways, from your unbelief, and you are to for, uh, confess your sins and turn to Christ and walk in his path, which is straight. It does not teeter to any side. It doesn't change direction and go to the left or to the right, depending on how the wind blows. It is straight and indefinite. So I should also make a note too here in the gospel of Matthew, we will see uh, the phrase kingdom of heaven used 32 times. Uh, it also means the kingdom of God. Uh, kingdom might be a better translated as reign because it does not refer to a geological location, but to God's act of ruling. So that it gets us into verse four and we have John wearing this garment of uh, camel's hair. And in Mark, we have a similar uh, statement being used. And this was uh, the, the leather or the camel's hair and the leather belt. This is worn by Elijah and other prophets. Uh, the Jews in Jesus's day expected Elijah to return. Uh, just before the Messiah would come, Jesus later equated John's ministry with the expected return of Elijah, as he does in chapter 9 of Mark. So the eating of locusts and wild honey, this is John's diet, is just as usual or unusual as his attire. These foods functioned as enacted prophecies against the prevailing worldliness and excessive concern for creature comfort. Locusts are mentioned as food in uh, the Cairo Damascus document, and they are cleansed by water or fire before being eaten. So a little interesting uh, historical note there from Mark's commentary, or commentary on Mark 1.6, I should say. So that is where we get the connection, right? So John is uh, essentially prophesied as the Elijah, and we will see, we'll see that kind of come to us a little bit later here. But Israel had expected Elijah. Israel had expected to, for him to return. And John is the fulfillment of that. John is the resemblance, the living picture of the Elijah. So he comes on the scene. He does the same thing, wore the same thing that Elijah wore to the camel hair, leather belt around his waist. And he's eating locusts and wild honey which is a statement from you know, the food that uh, Israel had been consuming and becoming um, you know, engulfed in with their sins because they've turned and allowed it to be sacrificed to other gods and they themselves have sacrificed to other gods. John is making this, this bold proclamation that he is abstaining from all of that and he's focusing solely on what it means to live a life dependent solely on God. So that takes us up to 
uh, verse 6, we've talked a little bit about 5. It's just showing us that uh, all of the people are hearing him preach this message and they're coming out to him. And they're being baptized, which is an interesting note because this is, again, before the ministry of Jesus. And then we will get here to the end of the chapter with the baptism of Jesus. So the goal of John's baptism at the Jordan River was to produce repentance. Again, remember, this is the turning away from sin, turning from unbelief and saying, okay, if if this guy's really true, if he's really saying what he's, you know, if what he's saying is really true, then the Messiah is coming. He's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's something significant going to be taking place, and I believe it because I've read the Old Testament, and, I, and I've and i heard the Pharisees preach it, and I now believe it. That is what John's goal was to do. Those who were baptized and confessed their sins could be certain of the forgiveness of sins, as indicated in Mark 1.4 and Luke 3.3. 3. And I got a little quote here from uh, John Christelston. He says this, when the sacrifice was not yet offered, how was the remission to take place? Had they not condemned themselves, they could not have sought after his grace and not seeking, they could not have obtained remission. Thus, that baptism led the way for this. Therefore, also, he said that they should believe on him, which should come after him. So it's twofold, right? So John the Baptist is proclaiming this baptism of repentance. And and then he turns and says, but don't believe in me. Believe in the one to come after me. The one to come after me is greater than I am. And I can only baptize you for repentance, but the one who comes after will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a few moments. Let's get to verse eight with these um, bearing good fruit and these Sadducees and uh, Pharisees who have come seeking him. Uh, we have this construct that they wanted John to baptize them with without having repented or confessing of their sins. Their works should have been evident enough of sincere repentance. And confession too cannot cannot be false, uncertain or fragmentary. A person who confesses that everything in him is nothing but sin includes all sins and it excludes none, forgets none. Neither can the satisfaction be uncertain because it is not our uncertain sinful work. Rather, it is the suffering in blood of the innocent lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it helps us again to understand these Pharisees and Sadducees may have been coming to him and saying, oh, you know, if he's doing this, then, you know, there might be something coming, but we're good people. We don't have to. We don't have to confess our sins. We, we don't sin. Just as I preached yesterday at church that uh, the, the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18 is beating or is, is praising God because he's not like this other, all these other men. He's not like the tax collector, the adulterer, the, uh, the unjust, the extortioners and, and all that sort. He's righteous in his own mind. So John is giving this statement and then he turns and calls them this brood of vipers and we'll see, again, harsh language from Jesus coming towards them uh, as the Pharisees have kind of chalked up their sinful nature and laid it to bear. So Abraham, our father, the spiritual confidence based on the biological descent from Abraham was no substitute for repentance. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, the stones could even be raised up as children to Abraham. 
And it's not that you have some sort of blood lineage. You're not bio- even if you are biologically related to Abraham, that does not excuse you from having to repent and confess your sins. So now we will get into this little bit of analogy. I'm going to kind of jump up to verse 11 and where John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. There is this um, interesting debate, if you would, amongst the Pentecostal and charismatic church and the rest of the Protestant church. And the 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 comment that they would address is exactly here in Matthew uh, three verse eleven, when he when John is saying Jesus is going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, and so they they will make this equation that you have to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, like you have to have a Holy Spirit baptism, and it, it they don't have any sort of means to actually address that. And they don't have any means to actually explain it. So it's it's one of those things that's like uh, they just leave it out and they don't ever talk about it. But they, they will make this statement, well, unless you're baptized by the Holy Spirit and have a Holy Spirit baptism and you're able to speak in tongues and you're able to do all these things and you certainly can't be saved unless that happens. That's ridiculous because if we understand what John says here uh, in verse 11 and then we take that and equate it to the rest of what Jesus says. And, you know, even instantly looking at verse 13 through 17, and we see that Jesus will be baptized here in a moment, that baptism is water and word combined. It is the word of God and it is the water washed over you. The water is the, uh, as Peter will equate it, the washing away the sins and the dirt. And we will have, the word of God being the promise that Christ is the one baptizing you. Paul makes the equation in Ephesians 5.25 that it is Jesus who washes his church, indicating it is Jesus who baptizes you. Not you being baptized yourself or uh, the, the pastor or priest or whoever baptizing you, but it is Christ baptizing you. So Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit for those who repent, but the unrepentant will experience the fire of eternal judgment. Jesus baptized his disciples with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and continues to pour out the Spirit on believers through word and sacrament. So it also pays us to know that the Holy Spirit comes as Jesus prophesied in John 14, uh, Jesus makes that statement that the Holy Spirit will come soon and does so after Jesus ascends. Jesus is there in the meantime. Once Jesus goes back to, uh, to, to heaven or to the right hand of God, the Holy Spirit comes down. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, we have that kind of washing out of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit comes and it just bathes his disciples with all of the things that they need to equip themselves for the ministry to come. So for us to understand the context, there is no difference between a a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of water. Baptism in of itself is God's promise being given to a person and paired with water. You can't have a baptism without water and you can't have a baptism without God's word. And if you have either one of those missing, then you are not having a valid baptism. 
So just an is a quick maybe reference point for you. If I'm up there at the altar and I have my little baptismal uh, bowl and I don't put water in it, but I act like I'm pouring water over the child as I baptize them, I'm delivering a false baptism because I'm not connecting water to it. And so John uses water here, but John's position is to call people to repentance because the initial sacrifice hasn't been yet given for the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. That comes after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where we see the differencing between the baptizing for the wa- with water for repentance and now the baptizing to welcome you into this family of Christ. And that's what we will see uh, Peter go on to say in Acts chapter 2 where he talks about uh, the promise that is given to uh, the crowd of men who were there and their children who were far off. This promise of the forgiveness of sins coming to those who are baptized. And it also is the other element to understand that in this framework, these are the first generation of believers. And so naturally these will be adults, but Peter also makes the statement. You are the first generation you standing before me. This promise is for you. Then he goes on to say, not only is it for you, but it's for your children. So that way it connects generation to generation. All right, let's get to the baptism of Jesus here as we're going well over our time. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John is the preacher of repentance, and as Martin Luther has often emphasized, that we believers must not only sincerely confess our sins, but also be certain of the forgiveness. Thank God for such preachers. As Jesus comes now to be baptized, he probably traveled somewhere around about 15 miles, maybe perhaps a little bit further to receive this. Uh, The two obviously were cousins. We talked about that previously, so they had known each other growing up, more or less. And in verse 14, it's interesting. John is trying to prevent himself from having to baptize him. He's saying, I should be baptized by you. John has refused to baptize the Pharisees and Sadducees because they failed to repent. Uh, But because Jesus was without sin, John also wanted to refuse baptism to the one who was mightier than he. He says, I need to be baptized. See, in the presence of Jesus, John has felt unclean. He recognized that Jesus could do for him what no one else could. So a little beautiful statement to that. It's not just that John's being, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to use the word submissive, but it's, you know, he's kind of, or cowering, but John is making the statement that he recognizes exactly what Jesus can do. And that is what nobody else can. That is actually genuinely forgive John of his sins. Because remember, John is a sinner like everybody else. The only perfect person is Jesus. Jesus answers in verse 15. This is first recorded words of Jesus in Matthew. 
in the present context of Jesus' mission to save sinners, we have these first few words. Uh, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, he, Jesus is submitting to John's baptism the same that sinners were undergoing in order to affirm his identity with the sinners and to provide with them perfect righteousness. And I've got a quote here from Hippolytus. He says, I am the fuller, fulfiller of the law. I seek to leave nothing wanting to its uh, whole fulfillment. Baptize me, John, in order that no, uh, no one may despise baptism. That's an interesting quote because I find that a lot of churches, especially in the Protestant movement, really uh, underplay the construct of baptism, the sacrament of baptism. They, they think it's not something of worthiness. They find it to just be like a, eh, something we do and, or it's something people do is kind of just a remembrance or it's just a, you know, a connecting piece. Oh yeah. Christians are baptized, blah, 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 blah. But Hippolytus here makes this beautiful statement because it, because Jesus is getting baptized, nobody should despise it. Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry and the anticipated his death on the cross. The fact that all four Gospels report the baptism of Jesus points to its importance. Luther captures the primary meaning of his baptism. Christ accepted it from John for the reason that he was entering into our steed and dead. Indeed, our person that is becoming a sinner for us, taking upon himself the sins which he would not commit and wiping them out and drowning them in his holy baptism. This is beautiful because in the Lutheran theology, we would equate that this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and it's the beginning of Jesus taking on the sin of the world. Because every time from here on out, when he goes to forgive sin, as he does in uh, you know Matthew and other gospels, Every time he forgives those sins of the people he interacts with, he takes those upon himself and he becomes sin. Paul makes that statement for us uh, in his letters that he became sin that knew no sin. He did not commit those sins. He was not the, the committer of those sins, but he took those sins upon himself and he became sin. And was, and then in his baptism and on the cross, those sins were drowned. They were destroyed. They were wiped clean. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So we got these last uh, couple verses, 16 and 17. What happened after Je uh, the baptism of Jesus was startling and completely unexpected. The entire Trinity is revealed when the Father's voice declares to Jesus to be his beloved Son and the Spirit descends on him. You cannot deny the Trinity. You will be denying Scripture. It is plainly right here. In the New Testament, the three persons most clearly are revealed in the baptism of Christ when the Father says, This is my beloved Son, and the Son is seen standing publicly in a river, and the Holy Spirit sits in a visible form upon the Son, along with the voice from heaven. This is beautiful, because we can't argue the Trinity. It is blatant right in front of us. The Father's voice, often heard in the Old Testament, was heard anew. This had been a, you know, a time of quietness from God, uh, uh, somewhere around about 430 years or so by now, where God has not spoken to any of the prophets or any of the priests or anything like that. God has been silent. But now the heavens open as Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of the water, he makes the statement, Behold, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we will have that statement uh, reiterated on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. 
So because Jesus is our substitute, we need not fear God's wrath or punishment for our sins. We are washed clean by the blood of the lamb, as John indicates in Revelation 7:14, who prepares the way, uh, who prepared the waters of baptism for us. So a little bit longer of an episode, but we had some, uh, some content to deal with and we worked ourselves through chapter three. So that is the proclamation of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. Again, we could sit and talk whole episodes just on verses 13 through 17 and discuss the importance and the weight of all that. But we've, we've gone through a pretty extensive study on baptism, but we haven't quite ever exhausted, nor will we ever exhaust it. And I think it'll be really good too. If you are curious on some of those constructs, there is that series earlier this year with uh, Chris from Ezra reads the law. We did a, um, a segment on John chapter three. We, we recorded together and released two episodes and I have them on my show. You can go back and listen to John chapter three as we see Jesus and Nicodemus having this conversation about being born again and being born of the spirit. Uh, and then we have the latter half of John three with the promise that God makes. So any of the gospels, anything, any way we take it, there's fascinating and beautiful truth that we get to unpack and dwell on and sit on and, and absorb. And I am so happy to be a part of this journey with you. And I hope you guys are enjoying this series and we will be back next week with the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter four, as we will also consider some of those out of place ordered uh, temptations as Luke records. And that means this is the end of the show. So uh, make sure you get to church on Sunday. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. We will see you later. God bless. Extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.